Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A contractor got into a pricing squeeze when the customer, in this case the Marine Corps, way underestimated the quantities for the services under the contract. It learned what can happen when the legal proceedings get complicated. For details on the lessons learned, we turn to Haynes Boone procurement attorney, Zach Prince. And Zach, let's start at the end here. What was the lesson learned? What's the principle we're talking about that every contractor needs to know here? So what was interesting about this case, Tom, and the reason that I want to talk about it is because of the dispute about a release. And a release is, like it sounds like, it, it releases the government or the contractor, depending on you know the language, from further claims relating to the subject matter. The government shoves these in to a lot of routine modifications And if you're not paying careful attention, you might have signed something that says, you know, here's this new FAR clause that will actually have pretty substantial costs. And that happens frequently. And executing this mod is a bilateral agreement that the parties have no further liability to one another arising from the facts, you know, giving rise to this mod. So you have these sort of sweeping formalistic releases that come into a lot of modifications and contractors are often not reading them and just signing them. And then when later they realize, wait a minute, what we just signed has huge costs, it's too late. Right. We have signed away our firstborn and can't get it back. (laughs) How did that work in this particular case? This was between the Marine Corps and a contractor that was tailoring uniforms. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the board in this case I think, didn't like the idea of a formalistic waiver of rights. But what happened here is the Marine Corps awarded the contract to this company in 2018 for uniform tailoring. And the pricing was based off of the Marines' estimates for types and number of alterations. And those estimates apparently proved to be grievously underestimated. And in 2021, the company submitted a request for equitable adjustment seeking essentially a doubling of the unit prices for the task orders that had already been performed under this contract and then a change going forward as well to the unit pricing. The government responded that it would be a good idea for the contractor to withdraw the REA, submit a new one, because the amount they were seeking was constantly fluxing just because they're continuing to perform work. And so it was hard for the government to nail down the exact fixed amount the contractor was seeking Why don't you, contractor, just submit an REA for a go-forward change to the unit pricing? Then once we've got a unit price that's established, submit a new REA to seek the retroactive recovery of the impact of that unit price for everything that's happened so far. Sounds like the government was maybe laying a trap there from what actually happened. Based on what actually happened, you might be right. But what I think, you know, with many things in government, there was an interesting decision in the Court of Federal Claims recently. They said, never chalk up to malfeasance what incompetence would just as easily explain. (laughs) Sure. And that's probably this case, too. The contractor did just that. They listened to the government. They said, "Okay, here's our second REA. We withdraw the first one. This one just seeks the change in the unit prices. And the government responded by issuing a draft final decision with draft modifications that granted that relief. They had some quibbling about the dates, but the government just accepted the argument. They acknowledged that their estimates were wrong and they acknowledged that there was an impact. 
that reworking, though, was for from this point forward on the prices, and it didn't address, so far as the contractor knew, what had happened to date when it presumably lost money. Exactly right. And the contractor was very clear that, good, we're going to resolve this, and now we're going to go ahead and submit our next REA for all the money going back. But the issue was the government had included these very broad releases in the draft modification. The contractor caught that issue and they said, hold on, we want you to go back to legal and confirm that this release doesn't actually impact our ability to go back and seek the money for the prior period, which is what we had always said we're going to do. The government told them to do. And we'd like you to actually amend it so that it's really clear that that's the case. And the government responded and said, well, we don't have authority to change this, which is silly because it's a contracting officer. But, you know, go ahead and execute this and it'll be fine. And the contractor assumed that that meant that, in fact, it would be fine. We are speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And I'm afraid to ask what happened next. Lo and behold... A few months after it executed the mods with these broad releases, they submitted the new REA and the government very quickly, within a week, I think, denied the REA on the basis that it had been released. Any claims had been released pertaining to these facts, which construed most broadly means that they also waived the look back claim. Right. So REA, again, is a request for equitable adjustment. And when the contractor submitted that claim, that uh, request for equitable adjustment on the prior part of the contract, da-da, there was a release in the way and too bad, basically, the government was saying. That's what they were trying to do to the contractor here. And, you know, it's hard to swallow this. I think this is the second case in the last couple of months that I've spoken with you about where the government tried to pull a procedural trap that struck me as really unfair. And this is another example where the government tried to pull this card that They knew full well when they negotiated this REA that the contractor did not think they were releasing the claim. Not only that, the government told the contractor to submit the claim this way, and then they're trapping them. They say, ah, we got you. We've got this release. All right. So then what happened? Did they take them to court? So they took them to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, which is where the case is now. And it's an $800,000 case. So usually in that context, you'll do an expedited procedure where you don't do some of the more formal trial mechanisms that you would do if it were a really big case. And the government moved for summary judgment. So they asked the court to decide just on the record before it that the release barred the claim. And that's that. Well, the board didn't agree. The board found that, yeah, the language of the release appears to be clear and unambiguous, but you have to look to context, particularly in the context of a release. You have to understand the circumstances, which allows here you to bring in the intent of the parties, which means, at least for now, the government can't win on the issue of the release. That doesn't mean the contractor won either. That's going to go on to later proceedings, effectively a a hearing. But for now, at least the government did not win on this issue. Interesting. So the lesson then is to read your claims, read your contracts, basically read whatever the government puts in front of you to sign. Yeah, I'd say there are a few lessons here, but the two biggest ones to me are, one, make sure that you understand what you're signing from the government always, even if it's a routine mod 
You know, I'm thinking back to the COVID vaccine clause because that one struck me as crazy that the government was including releases in every mod that they issued on that saying that you're not owed any money for something that is obviously a sweeping impact for most companies. Even if the government says, don't worry, it's routine. Read what they're putting in front of you. Ask your lawyers if you have to. Make sure you understand what it is you're signing. And if it says anywhere, this is you know, a satisfaction of any issues that could arise from this set of facts, that's a release. And that means that you might not be able later, if you realize that there is a cost to the change, to get any money. The second thing I would caution contractors to be careful of is don't rely on statements that somebody in the government makes that seems to contradict otherwise clear contract language. And I don't think it's because the government is always trying to trap you. There are probably people out there who are. It's because people move around and people, you know, your contracting officer today might not be your contracting officer tomorrow. In this case, your contract specialist never had authority to bind the government. And it's not fair, but it's just the reality that if the government says something means something that the words don't suggest, words matter and mean things, right? And you just have to be careful that the things you sign reflect what you believe they should and not what one of the parties says they do. Got it. And by the way, this company was called Sonabend. And what was it they were actually doing for the Marine Corps? Uniform tailoring, actually. They were uh, tailoring uniforms for Marine Corps recruits. Recruits have their uniforms tailored? It looks like it. They've got a first fitting and a second fitting. And the issue here was all about second fitting alterations. I guess that comes eight weeks after they enter and they're done with basic training. They have to have them taken in, we hope, or something. But anyway, well, <laughs> there's somebody's got to do everything. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you have your podcast taken in. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.